Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time, and sometimes the bottom 100 as well. I am your host, Darren Mooney, and not joining us this week at very short notice uh, is my co-host, Andrew. Appropriate, perhaps, enough for the kind of the movie that we're discussing. Myself and Andrew appear to have had a communications breakdown, <laughs> but that's okay because we've got a special guest joining us, sitting in the hot seat, the fantastic Raymond Kramer uh, from Cinema Mystique. Uh, how are things? Cinematology. Cinematology. Raymond Kramer and Cinematology. Raymond um, I'll get there eventually. Yeah, sorry. Right. I, I was gonna. I was just gonna try and pretend to be Andrew. <laughs> I think I've listened to the podcast <laughs> long enough that I I could have just. I hated it, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of so groan so a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Why are you making me suffer, Darren? Why are you making me suffer? Well, again, that is the format of the podcast, is that it seemed, Andrew had the idea of doing the podcast, and it seems like it's become a device through which I, I gradually torture him by making him watch movies. Um, but yes, so we reached out to, to you. Obviously, uh, you and I have kind of we worked together on The Escapist before. You had me uh, on cinema, uh, cine mythology um, a little while ago talking about The Color of Money, uh, which was yeah. a delight. And you mentioned that you listen to the podcast, uh, which is great, because when people do that, I feel less embarrassed about asking them on the podcast. Sure. It always feels kind of nerdy to go, would you like to come on the I podcast? Feel, I feel to mention um, I listen to it ironically. <laughs> I yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that's cool. It feels, not, you know, not that, uh, not that the movie that we're going to be discussing today reflects that in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, as with any guest that we're having on, I ask, like, is there, here's a list of movies from the both lists that we have yet to cover. Are there any you would like to talk about? And you said, yes, I'd love to talk about a Kurosawa film. And I'm like, fantastic. We'll, uh, we'll arrange that down the line. And like, uh, okay, I guess I could talk about <laughs> Dumb and Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd, the 2003 Troy Miller comedic prequel. Comedic in and, uh, inverted commas there, maybe. Ironically, yeah. ironically comedic. Um, but what was it? Like, why was it when you saw those lists? Obviously, you went for Kurosawa first, but what was it about, like, Dumb and Dumber sure. that it was like, that's something I'd like to talk about? There, Honestly, there were kind of two reasons that this one stood out to me on the worst of list. The first is that I um, I love Dumb and Dumber. It, it It's one of my favorite comedies. Like, I, I rewatched it yesterday in anticipation of this discussion, and it, it still holds up, I think, for the most part. It's very, very funny. And I think that this movie kind of serves as a, an interesting sort of compare and contrast or a, a, a lesson in like the do's and do nots of prequelizing or sequelizing a movie. And on some level, also just like a basic crash course in screenwriting in general that I, I think there's so much that Dumb and Dumber does right. And this movie just completely has so many just like basic eye level unforced errors that makes you really wonder what what was going on with this creatively. I'm sure we can get into that a little bit more over the course of the discussion. But the second reason, and this this is probably gonna sound really stupid. <laughs> um, but I saw I saw this movie in theaters. I was 13 years old when it came out. And like I said, Dumb and Dumber is one of one of my favorite movies, certainly one of my favorite movies at that point. I, I adored Jim Carrey growing up. And I went to this movie thinking like, well, there's no way it'll be anywhere as good as the original. But I'm still expecting to have a good time. I'm still hoping that there there will, you know, that it's a pretty simple formula, the original. And I'm thinking like, well, it's tough to mess up. It's just two guys being complete idiots. Like, there, there should be enough meat on that bone to get a few good chuckles out of the audience. 
but 95 minutes all you gotta hit is 95 yeah. minutes <laughs> exactly. um but like i said this this is going to sound very dumb uh and i don't really know how much it's going to matter in the final final analysis because on a rewatch like this is a very very bad movie <laughs> but i went into this movie and kind of tried to watch it on its terms and i don't think i would have been able to do that about any other movie on the list that you gave me like I went into this movie with an open heart expecting to laugh with it and not just like laugh at it maybe ironically or have that distance from it. And like I said, I don't know how how valuable that perspective will be over the course of this because I forgot how bad this movie is. That's another thing is I I remember seeing this, but I didn't really remember anything about it other than like the Bob <laughs> Saget stuff. Yes. Like, until until yesterday, when I rewatched it, I could not have told you what the plot of this movie was. Even just taking, I I I just would have been like, I, I don't know. It's like Harry and Lloyd in high school or whatever. And I think there was a part of me that sort of believed, well, if it was really that bad, I would remember how bad it was. Whereas, in anticipation of this or picking it off that list, I was just kind of like. Well, I remember watching that one and, you know, I think I remember having a few chuckles. So it might it might be interesting for a few reasons. And boy, oh boy, this was this was really rough. <laughs> it was oh, really it's, rough. It's, it's, it's a slog. Like we, we've discovered on this podcast, like there's nothing worse than a like comedy movie on the bottom 100 because those movies run like 90 minutes, but they feel like an eternity. Sure. They feel like they last like the extended cuts of Lord of the Rings. They're just unending somehow in in violation of all laws of like man and morality and time and space but before we talk about that like do you want to talk a little bit about dumb and dumber like because if you this is the only time we're ever going to get to talk about it on the podcast it seems like it's a movie you have a great deal of affection for like do you remember the first time you saw it so if you were 13 when you saw dumb and dumber i'm guessing i would have been like you didn't see dumb and dumber in a no when dumb and dumber came out but i was I don't know. It seems like one of those movies that I've just has just always been. And I think because that movie, as much as anything, I think that was that miracle year that Jim Carrey had when he broke out. That was like, it was either Dumb and Dumber first and then Ace Ventura and then The Mask or something like that. In like a, a, a year or 18 month span, there were just these three movies that hit back to back to back. That cemented where his like salary went somewhere yeah, it, from like, like you know, doubled each times or so, yeah yeah and more than doubled like I think they added a zero each time no it was crazy he just had this miracle yeah. year that basically cemented him as like the comedic screen icon of his generation and I don't I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that like Lloyd Christmas could quite possibly be his most iconic role. Um, you know, it's certainly one of the most quoted roles. I think Ace Ventura probably takes the cake for like cartoonishness. Yeah. Um, certainly people love to do impersonations of Ace Ventura, but this is a movie or rather not this movie. I wish we were talking about a better movie, <laughs> <laughs> but Dumb and Dumber is a movie that feels like it connected with people on not just like the character basis, but on a scene to scene basis. And I think that's one of the yeah. The great things about that movie is that watching it now, I mean, you could you could teach that screenplay in a screenwriting class. There's just no fat on it. It just every every single joke or comic set piece is either paying off or setting up or simultaneously paying off and setting up future 
you know, uh, uh, conflict, future jokes, uh, more narrative progression, etc. And the few times that that movie does kind of put the plot on a hold to set up a, a, a comic set piece, it earns it by being extraordinarily funny. Um, one that, uh, that comes to mind. Is Andrew joining us? I, I don't know. Um, he did. He messaged me earlier and said he wasn't, and then yeah. he appears to have appeared in the waiting. No, room. I, I I I just wanted to come on and apologize. This, this, this is so. You just wanted to come on and apologize for so, interrupting me. I beg your pardon, Raymond. I'm sorry. I'm messing um, with you, man. No, it's it's no, a pleasure to meet I, you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to meet you. No, I'm I'm like at at, at work and I, I try to get some stuff done and then I got this email from Darren and I was like, oh no, oh god, <laughs> um, I, I like, I'm sorry, I, no, no, I no, sorry. it's it's, I... it's absolutely my fault. I looked I looked back through everything and like I I I think we may have a record for like confirming Thursday the most times ever. And, <laughs> and it, like this is the absolute height of stupidity. I hope it's apropos for the movie. Yeah, we've already. <laughs> Darren even does this great thing that I appreciate because uh, we're eight hours apart. I'm not sure that he does this for you, Andrew, but he. I really appreciate because we're always talking across time zones. Whenever Darren's scheduling with me, he goes, "Okay, I will see you in one hour and twenty six minutes from right now." <laughs> I yeah no did Darren is very good at this this is entirely me the, the, the um i yeah I, I i listened to your um uh it's a cinematology isn't it yes yes uh, or uh, cinemastique as it's known in some territories oh. yes um i i managed to i mangled that coming out of the game <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens we, andrew when you're not here to crack where i mean i think i believe there's a lawsuit in 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 ireland with with, with an earlier podcast also <laughs> called uh, cinematology but cinemastique is 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 what they call it here and then it's magner in northern ireland um, we, um, yeah. we, we definitely have to have you on, Andrew, but I just, I love the notion of, of Darren sending you similar messages like, all right, we're going to be recording in four days, three uh, hours and 16 minutes. <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, we'll see about that, Darren. <laughs> to be clear, Darren, Darren did absolutely everything. We, we sometimes have a bit that I'm the reliable one and I hope our listeners know that that's not, um, correct. So yeah, no, I I just want to I, I wanted to say apologies, and I, I was saying to Darren that there's dumb dumb dumber and 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 dumbest, and 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 I I I really do feel stupid for, for no no sorry for I'm sorry about this entirely. Before we go, have you watched the movie? Because you have to get back to work. Have you watched the movie? Do you have any pocket thoughts? Uh, do you want to share them very quickly and then? To go work. I have not. I I love I love Dumb and Dumber. I was I was going to watch it. I was going to watch it this evening, but um, as a double feature, yeah, I was going to do one of those things where I catch it in between other stuff, where I like do it while doing the wash and like it 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 um like I I think ha- the way that it was meant to be enjoyed. The way that it was meant to be enjoyed. I I think Hatchy, a dog story, is the only movie so far that I've watched on my phone. But I was considering kind of like doing the same thing on on this because I'm like, when am I going to get to watch this? Boy, Richard, Richard Gere really feels fills the screen when you're watching. <laughs> watching your the, the answer the sharp hours undeniable. It's a screen presence. It, like I was struggling over the question of like, how am I going to watch this? And the answer is, 
I didn't. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I don't ever I, have yeah. to. Um, so, <laughs> you, I think this this may all just be a ploy to avoid watching this vile reprehensible. Oh, this movie. is like the second time this has happened, and the first time it happened, it was over bereavement, and the second time, this time, is um, for for no good reason at all. Uh, so, yeah. Um, ho- ho- hopefully not a story of things to come. Anyway, I have interrupted you, Raymond. Uh, no, no, but I, I need to bring do... some chaos to 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 every episode. <laughs> to the we, yeah. we should fittingly we should make an adaptation of this episode uh, <laughs> like nine years from now, where we remake it with all three of us with with younger people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is Dumb and Dumber as well. Yeah, no, Dumb and Dumber Two. This, this is Dumb and Dumber. Oh, Dumb and Dumber Two is yeah. The third film is called... I probably would have watched the wrong movie as well. (laughs) And it really feels like they kind of burned the title on this one. Like, if they had it to do over, it seems like this this makes more sense as a sequel title. And well, Dumb and Dumber 2 sounds passive-aggressive, though. It's like, there never was another Dumb and Dumber movie. Don't worry about it. But this, this movie also has the weird, like... Uh, tagline subtitle where you can tell that when Harry Met Lloyd started as a tagline, but then the marketing department was like, "Well, we gotta, we gotta make sure everyone knows that Jim Carrey's not gonna be in this." <laughs> like, like, that's like be Jim Carrey was fielding interviews in 2003 where he was like, "I keep having to tell people, I'm sorry, I'm not in the movie." Yeah. Um, but sorry, Andrew, we will let you get back to work because you actually have work to do, and it is very no, no important. problem. I, um, I ought to, I ought to have been joining you, and and I'm um, sorry, and um, and Billy Crystal also got the same questions um, about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Are you looking forward to when Harry met Lloyd? Um, <laughs> Okay, bye. But we do have a Billy Crystal note to get to. (laughs) Thanks, thanks, Andrew. Pleasure meeting you. Thanks, guys. Pleasure meeting you, Rem. All of us. Bye, bye. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, when Andrew jumps into a a Zoom meeting that his boss has with someone else tomorrow (laughs) to apologize for skipping work today (laughs) or whatever. whatever (laughs) To talk about dumb and dumber. but yeah, like I mean, that—that's the thing. I—I I also did what you did. I watched the entire Dumb and Dumber trilogy, which is a strange thing to say. I haven't seen the sequel. I got real fool me twice energy from that one, uh, so I steered clear of it. Oh, it's a—it's a good call. I mean, I—I I went to see that because it was the Farleys and because it was uh, again, it was Bridges and it was sorry, not Bridges, uh, Daniels. Daniels. I keep yeah. getting the Jeffs confused. Uh, so many Jeffs, and obviously Kerry as well. Um, but like, yeah, I, I rewatched all three or I watched all three <laughs> for this um, and rewatching the first one. Like, is Dumb and Dumber the best Farley Brothers movie? I would say so. And is that arguable? I would I would say it's not even close. I mean, I've never been a big like Farley Brothers fan, um, but I think I, I saw your your tweet thread kind of talking about it a little bit where you were saying that it it's probably aged far better than most of their work. And <laughs> Than I expected it to. Yeah. I went into this kind of dreading it. Like, because again, you mentioned like Carrie's Miracle Year, where it is founded on Ace Ventura, which when you watch it today is, and I, like it was in the 90s, one of the most transphobic movies ever yeah, made. But you watch it today and there's there's a real moment where you're like, oh boy. And like something, again, stuff like Something Out Mary, which is a movie I probably would have preferred over this in the 90s. You go back and you watch it and there's a whole bunch of developmental stuff yeah. and gay panic stuff and all I've that only ever stuff. seen that once and that never really clicked with me um but uh 
I I think the to kind of to your point, I think the the masterstroke out of any single creative decision in Dumb and Dumber, and I think this is something they get right in a lot of the like Will Ferrell and John C. Riley movies. Like Step Brothers is a good kind of yeah. uh, um, companion piece. Sure, spiritual successor. It, yeah, exactly. I think the the master stroke of those movies is that they never diagnose the characters they never yes. pathologize yeah. the characters it's just like yeah. these guys are just dumb and you can just have them be dumb they're not like they're they're not disabled and yes. it never feels like you're punching down because even more than being dumb the thing that they're teenagers well are you talking about okay. dumb and dumb or er or Dumb and Dumber. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the original Dumb and Dumber. So th- but Dumb this and Dumber is... is that they're like 12-year-olds. Yeah, but that's, that's kind of the thing about Dumb and Dumber that makes it work. Like, look, we'll get into Dumb and Dumber-er, as, you know, yeah. as promised. We'll... We're pushing it all <laughs> well, as yeah, exactly. as we can. <laughs> but Dumb and Dumber-er is so flagrantly ableist in a way yes. that the movie, the original, makes a point of not yeah. being. Or not necessarily that yeah. it makes a point of it, but it just isn't. But it just doesn't. Yes, it, it just, just doesn't bring it up. It doesn't engage. Whereas the entire plot of Dumb and Dumber is, is, is drawing attention to that. Built on a bedrock of, yes. And labeling it. And yes, yeah. And, and the weird thing, even beyond that, is that even if it weren't for the flagrant ableism and racism and elitism that pervades yeah. Dumb and Dumber-er, there's something that's really weird. It's almost like a, 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 a like a parabola that it in dumb and dumber when these guys are acting like children despite being in their 30s or late 20s or however old jim carrey and jeff daniels were um when they say a line like uh there's the the bit with the owls where jeff daniels goes up to mary and he says great great that's a great set of hooters you got there and he's just so weird but so affable and disarming in his way. And he seems so earnest that even before she realizes he's talking about the owls, there's, there's this great reaction that she plays in that moment. That's just like, what? Like who, who are you dressed like this at a party like this being that brazen with any woman, let alone a woman such as myself, but it it feels kind of toothless in its way. It feels Because they're so infantile, despite being adults, it weirdly kind of defangs the more potentially problematic aspects of their characters. Whereas when you watch the the prequel, because they're children who are children, rather than children in adult bodies, they're children in children's bodies, they just feel like gross high school guys. Like there is, there's no layer of nuance to it, like you can't get away with the same stuff. Like there's this, this is, I mentioned the Bob Saget stuff as being some of the only stuff yes, I remembered from this that movie. Stayed with you. Yeah. Sure. But the, the only other line I remember from the movie is kind of a sort of riff on the nice Hooters line where, uh, Jugs, the jugs line. Is well, it? that's that's later in the movie. They do this throughout okay. the movie where they just kind of go yeah. back to the same. Well, copy, over the, and over. copy the jokes. Yeah. But Harry, meets the uh the the main girl jessica who is kind of positioned as the love interest yeah rachel nichols character and the first thing he says to her is i hope the carpet matches the drapes 
And then she says, what? And he goes, in the library. I hope the carpet matches the drapes. And then the camera just cuts to a a newspaper that's on top of her trapper keeper that says school library has opened. And it's such a long, like, it's simultaneously. How do you get to that? Yeah, it's like simultaneously lazy and labored. It's like such a stupid, cheap, I don't, I hesitate to call it a joke. It's just sexual harassment. But then the just like the the reverse justification for it doesn't even make sense in the way that like a simple tossed off like the owls thing makes sense yeah. you know the owls like, thing the is... owls are established in the shot exactly. like the owls the owls are in the room when he walks in the camera doesn't exactly you know loiter on them or whatever but they're part of the scenery and you can see them as opposed to as you say reverse engineering well, the entire scene is built around we're saving these owls and stuff whereas in the thing with the the library like even when they cut to the newspaper it doesn't say a library renovated got new carpets and drapes or whatever it's just like the library is open and you're just like how how on earth do you get it's like a to z whereas in dumb and dumber it's always just a to b and it just and i think that's a perfect microcosm of this movie is just like they're constantly taking the like path of most resistance to make the cheapest easiest jokes and it just doesn't make any sense it's utterly bizarre in a way but i like so all that to say you know to talk about dumb and dumber i think one of the things that makes it succeed so much like i said is that like it never pathologizes these guys like you know the movie could very easily just be called like selfish and enabler like you know that's the thing about the movie is that like those guys as characters and this gets into why i think dumb and dumber could be taught in screenwriting classes and i'm sure in some in some ways it is that it is just it's so simple it's so streamlined the plot of the movie is two idiots go on a road trip to return a piece of luggage to uh, one of the idiots dream woman or whatever very very simple it's a you know a, a simple straightforward plot foundation yeah. for them to it's a clothesline on which you can hang various sequences and gags and, organic yeah. jokes and comic set pieces on and then the plot of this movie is just like a school principal and his mistress want to scam the school district out of some funds so they set up a, a quote special needs class in order to bilk those funds and then the b plot is an intrepid young newspaper reporter is trying to get to the bottom of that scam at no point are harry and lloyd the protagonists of the film despite being its main characters they have no agency they, they, they're never choosing to do anything. They exist at the whim of the principal and uh, Eugene Levy and Sherry O'Terry's characters. It's just like, even from a, just a screenwriting, like the basics of screenwriting level, like this movie doesn't have a protagonist. It's just it, like, I guess the, the protagonist would be like Eugene Levy because he's the one moving the movie forward, but he's always also the antagonist because he's the bad guy. And it just, it's just stuff like that where you're like, what is going on in this film? And it seems to me, like, because the first one is so simple, like, have Harry and Lloyd meet on a school field trip, and then the bus leaves without them, and then the movie is them bonding as they try and get back to school together. It's like, that might not be a great movie, but at least it's simple, and it puts them in charge of the narrative, and and it's relatable. 
but I just don't, I don't get how, like, once again, this movie is working so hard to accomplish <laughs> so little, and it's just baffling to me. Oh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating kind of movie, just in terms of how it came together. Obviously, after the success of Dumb and Dumber, massive success, as one might expect, um, the, there was an, there was an attempt to make a sequel. They tried to convince the Farley brothers, they tried to convince Carrie, of course, and they tried to convince, uh, Daniels to sign back on for it. Uh, couldn't manage to do any of that. Eventually, the Farley said, basically, look, we didn't want to revisit ourselves. There's a really, really good quote where they're like, we were asked, like, would we want to make, say, there's something something else about Mary or is there something more about Mary? And they're like, it wasn't natural. It seemed like a money grab. Um, and again, they, they identify the problem that, that you and I both did here, which is like <clears throat> when they turned down the prequel, they're like, you know conceptually flawed 16 year old kids are all dumb the idea of dumb and dumber is that they're 40 and they're that Precisely, dumb yeah. um and they did say ironically that you know while they were doing giving that interview they were doing the three stooges and their next project was gonna be dumb and dumber too at which point they said you know it seems like a good time to be getting back to what we used to do and i also hope we return to the old box office grosses as well um but basically after the Farleys turned it down, they went to like Parker and Stone, the two guys responsible for uh, South, South Park, Park, obviously. Yeah. Um, and they were like, they paid them $2 million up front, which is a sizable chunk of change to give to a bunch of writers. And they said, can you make a movie around this premise? And it got to the point where Parker and Stone in 1999, after they made South, Car- South Park bigger, longer and uncut, they're like, we cannot like artistically incredibility you know kind of take this money we can't in good conscience take this money and do whatever it is you want us to do they gave the money back to new line cinema they returned the two million dollar advance saying no no we can't do it and like this is how you end up with the movie that we end up with which as you say like it follows the path of most resistance for the you know the easiest and laziest possible gags in the most labored manner imaginable like it it ends up being directed by like Troy Miller who is probably best known as a filmmaker now for his work doing There's the short like films that introduced stand up oh. specials and stuff right i wasn't he he does yeah he um also directed i think as a Kathy Griffin's uh, self-funded okay. um like comedy special the one that nobody would pay for so she released it directly herself so that is i believe his most recent directorial credit but he also is responsible if you read his uh wikipedia page uh, and his imdb biography which are edited by i assume people who represent troy miller mm. um they talk in great depth about how his great innovation his lasting legacy the shadow that he casts across movie making is the fact that he's responsible for these sketches that introduced the academy award the MTV Awards and the Emmy. That makes so much sense. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Um, it explains a lot about the movie that we ended up with. But yeah, so he basically ended up on that and he ended up writing the script for it as well, um, adapting from a kind of a Robert Brenner premise. And again, the movie was made in a budget, I believe, of $25 million, roughly, um, somewhere around that, that region. Sorry, $19 million, which is less than Jim Carrey's fee would have cost That's, to make him to, to get him to come back for the sequel, it, which is... Frankly, it's kind of surprising to me that this costs that much because I don't really know where that money went. Eugene Levy don't work cheap. Yeah, well, this is like prime. This is peak Eugene Levy, baby. It, he's coming off of. Sorry. Yeah, he's coming off of eight American, American Pie sequels. Pie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it is. It is weird. When I was watching, I would have guessed that this movie was made for four million dollars, because like, not just you know because there aren't like a bunch of stars in it or whatever, but like this movie ostensibly takes place in like 1986. 
when yes. these characters are teenagers. But listening to Ice Ice Baby, yeah. But the the movie makes the just like the faintest gestures toward the period. There are entire scenes and sequences where that take place in what appear to be like contemporary houses where people are just wearing like Bob Saget looks like he just walked in out of his house or what like yeah. you know there there's so much stuff like that that like for 19 million dollars you would think this would look like some they would lean into the really gaudy 80s-ness of it all and and make more of a joke out of that but like there are times where I frequently forget that I'm I'm watching what is supposed watching to be a period, a period piece. piece because also like the sensibilities of the kids and their sense of fashion it all feels very it feels very early aughts. Like, yeah. um, you know, there are certain characters that they introduce as, like, the one guy who fell on his skateboard is just wearing, like, a hoodie and a t-shirt. It's, like, stuff like that that all just feels like, I don't know, I went to high school with this guy in, in 2004. I didn't, <laughs> like, not in 1986. <laughs> it's just weird. It's so weird to me that they spent that much money because also this movie... Well, that's the budget roughly of, like, everything, everywhere, all at once. Adjusted yeah, for inflation. To yeah. Put that in perspective. It, like... And it does not look like... It's so, it's so bizarre. And this, this movie also, like, weirdly, I, I will give credit where credit is due. I think occasionally this movie is very well directed. (laughs) Like, there are, there are scenes where, um, uh, for example, when the, the newspaper, uh, uh, reporter is chasing the bus on the field trip. And yeah. there's one shot that is like clearly on like a Russian arm or something where it 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 slides off the front of the hood of the bus during this car yeah. chase and then off to the side of the road as like the bus's stop sign comes out and the girl sort of screeches to a halt behind it. Like there is some panache to the film. Like this this movie had the same cinematographer as a couple of Nicholas Rogue movies. <laughs> like there <laughs> there is some pedigree behind the camera. Um but it does, it kind of feels like, I don't know, you know, you sometimes you can see the budget in moments like that. Or then weirdly, like, when they, they get the slushies and they have the brain freeze, they do the fight club yeah. thing of, like, going into the, the CGI person's... into the brain. And it's just like, this is dumb and dumber. This is like what it, so it's bizarre the way the money was spent on this in ways that, like, I'm just now hearing that this cost $19 billion And I'm thinking to myself, like, if you had just leaned way into the '80s aesthetic of it, it would take this movie up ten percent, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like that—that's the weird thing about it, where it feels like it's a very 2003 movie in a number of very glaring ways. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we mentioned the Eugene Levy of it all, which is very much like a 2003 pre Shit's uh, Creek kind of cameo for a role for Levy. It's also like again a high school movie, which feels like it's one of those things that was again post American Pie. Uh, not another teen movie was a couple of years earlier as well. Yeah. It feels very like tailored this, to that. This movie sensibility. feels like a raunchy high school comedy. Yes. That they just kind of, like a script that was totally Retro, unrelated yeah. to Dumb and Dumber that they just dusted off and they're like, oh, just stick Harry and Lloyd into the middle of this plot. And I, like, for all I know, that could be it. I like, but it definitely, I made a note of that as I was watching. I was like, you could just pull Harry and Lloyd out of this and it would have, you know, no effect on the, I guess, because once again, they're not the agents of the plot in any way. <laughs> Yeah, it would kind of have the vibe of one of those, like, epic movie kind of things. Yeah. Where those awful, awful, awful spoof movies that you're... The Seltzer and Friedberg. Yeah, I steered I steered clear of those when you sent me the list. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. seems like a lot of people oh. have been steering clear of those. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. No, no. They're very high. And we are at some point going to have to do like it's going to be like the inverse of our summer of Scorsese, like the summer of Seltzer and the fall of Friedberg or something like that. <laughs> the summer um, of Seltzer and the fall of Friedberg. <laughs> I like that. Um, we'll just have to like we'll have to grit our teeth and kind of get through it. All right. So before we talk about the movie in, in a bit more depth, before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions to, to get us started yeah, here. Spo- so, spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot yeah, of people. You want to preserve the surprise <laughs> and the exactly twists. I mean, trying to put off learning too much about this 20 year old <laughs> atrocity. <laughs> Um, not to jump to the third question, which is, will you recommend this? But anyway, um, do you think Dumb and Dumber or When Harry Met Lloyd is one of the worst 100 movies ever made? Does it belong the bottom 100? I think you guys get into, uh, when you ask this question or the version of this question on the top 250, you get into this kind of sophistry about like, what's the difference between the the best or just the most worthy of the list in in a way. Yeah. And I think that there there is like a a similar thing on this end cuz like I I am certain that there are at least 100 regional horror movies that were shot on mini DV cameras 20 years ago that are just languishing on people's hard drives right now that are absolutely worse than this. <laughs> but they're only worse than this because of how inept they are. Like they're, they're, I guarantee, probably more earnest than this movie is at the very least. And so I think if you're putting together a list that like represents or, or rather checks off the boxes of like the worst aspects of film culture. I think that this one checks a lot of those boxes. And I think in the way that like on the top 250 list, you're saying, you know, oh, you got to have some Scorsese, you got to have some Kurosawa, you got to have some, some Bergman or whatever. Like if you were putting together a list of 250 movies that serve as like as complete a film education as as possible that you can get in 250 movies, I think that this movie belongs on a list like this because it runs perfectly in that lane of like studios trying to wring blood out of out of IP and like in a weird way you know this kind of I feel like beats a lot of those movies to the punch but this yes. this movie feels feels like it is running in the same lane as like Legend of Chun-Li and Fant for Stick and stuff like that, where it's just like I do think there should be a few movies on this list that represent the the very twenty first century kind of phenomenon of just trying to like wring as much out of these tired IPs as possible. And this this movie definitely checks that box. <laughs> I mean, like it is it is worth again putting this in in context. And again, this is the thing with the we notice the tropes of the two fifty as we talk about it. And we notice that the Bottom 100 also has its own particular tropes where like being like a 12 year old kid in 1999 is the ideal demographic for voting on the IMDb 250. (laughs) Um, And it it really seems like being a child, a teenager between like 2000 and 2005 is like the ultimate like arbiter for being the voter on the bottom 100. Like it is impossible for a modern blockbuster, no matter how bad, to end up on the bottom 100. You'll never have Jurassic World Dominion on there, for example. You will never have Fan Four Stick on there. But if you go between like 2000 and 2006, there's a lot of those movies that get on there. Movies like say Catwoman, for example. Sure. Movies like um, this one that we're talking about here. And it's kind of interesting that you say like this. This feels kind of early because it is because we kind of have this weird phase. It, it that we I don't know if we've really classified it 
uh, Darren says arrogantly on this podcast about stupid movies in the bottom 100. But you have, obviously, you have, like, the 90s, and you have the blockbusters of the 90s, the kind of, like, the Tony Scott movies, the, the Emmerich movies, all this sort of stuff, where there's, there, there's a sensibility to them. You know, they're not usually sequels. They're not usually too IP-derived. They tend to be original. They tend to be star-driven. We still have movie stars, all this sort of stuff. They're big. They're bombastic. Um, and obviously, they're scaling upwards. They're kind of like the children of, like, the Simpson Bruckheimer movies and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Bay is on the cusp of arriving. And then, obviously, in 2008, you have the arrival of Iron Man and the MCU, and that's a whole new franchise machine. Yeah. And it's kind of weird that, like, Dumb and Dumber arrives, like, in that weird interregulum where you have a summer, and it's great going back and reading all the reviews of this. People are like, man, there are too many sequels now. <laughs> this summer alone, we have Too Fast, Too Furious, Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle, 28 Weeks Later, and Dumb and Dumberer. And it's, that's too many sequels. And it's kind of like, you, you sweet summer, summer children. Um, <laughs> and there is an argument to be made that, again, like, do you know when this came out? Uh, like roughly in the year. I know obviously I 2003. Do, I, I actually know up, precisely uh-huh. when it came out because oh. I rewatched the trailers in anticipation of this uh. because I have a thing that I want to dig into with the trailers. Okay. But I believe it was June, J-O-O-N, 13th, 2003, according to the trailer. It was indeed. Can you imagine a movie like this getting like prime June real estate in 2003? And do you know what it opened against? In what Vulture has described as possibly the worst summer movie weekend in memory. Um, from 2003? No, no. Put me out of my misery. Rugrats Go Wild and Hollywood Homicide. Those were the two other big new releases. Hollywood Homicide is uh, what, Josh Hartnett and Harrison Ford? Josh Hartnett and Harrison Ford, yeah. I never, I never saw that one. Uh, Apparently and, uh, it's terrible. I haven't seen Rugrats um, Go Wild. I was too busy watching this in theaters <laughs> to catch those movies, apparently. <laughs> Uh, but like it, it's just kind of interesting that's like it is that's it is that snapshot and it's like if you were to pick the movie from that set that most represents like where we are now as a culture it's probably this one which is slightly under 100 percent um all right then and for, and for myself i i kind of agree pretty much with what you're saying when we talk about this i like there being something representative on there i like there being movies that are big i like there being movies that are franchise movies uh because i think we don't have enough of them on the bottom 100 representative to the to what they do to cinema culture uh when they're that bad so I agree entirely. Second question. Going back to your 13-year-old self or answering now as an adult who just rewatched it last night with no memory of it. <laughs> is Dumb and Dumberer one of the worst 100 movies you've ever seen? Is it one of your 100 most hated movies? I, I mean, I, I make a point of not hating movies because I, uh, uh, like, I, I just think movies are so harmless for the most part. <laughs> like... Sure, I hate, like, Birth of a Nation and Triumph of the Will or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) I think it's safe. Does Dumb and Dumber belong in that? (laughs) Um, This is is one of those movies that's, like, it it is very, I mean, in ways that I did not remember. It's, like, shockingly vile. Um, Can can I ask you, like, as a 13-year-old, obviously you repress the particulars of it. You don't remember anything except the Bob Saga stuff. Sure. Do you remember the mood of you coming out of it? Like, when you were 13, when you walked out of the cinema, how did you feel compared to how you walked in? You know what's... Like, were you disillusioned or were you like, eh, it was a movie? No, I I literally, I remember walking in. I guess I was in a a fugue state as I was walking out. (laughs) No, I remember walking in and turning, uh, turning to my friend Gavin and saying, uh, much what I said just a moment ago, that like... Oh, I'm sure this isn't going to be great, but like, you know, I'm I, I'm looking forward to it. And we How were bad. Can it yeah, be? Yeah, we were amped up a little bit. So I literally yeah. remember taking our seats and saying that. 
But then the only thing I remember in the wake of this movie as it pertains to like the way that it affected us and in our friend group is that um, uh, something I had completely weirdly repressed, not in like a traumatic way. But there's the line where Lloyd says to the dog, like, don't snap at me like that. You're lucky I, I don't punch you in the face. And that line weirdly became a quote in our friend group that like anytime one of our friends was getting like frustrated or something, we go, don't snap at me like that. You're lucky I don't punch you in the face. <laughs> and I don't remember why that line got stuck in our heads, but it just maybe it's because it's one of the only semi inspired bits in the movie, like playing Cyrano with a dog feeding you lines. It's kind of funny, yeah. but no, no, I don't, I don't remember our, our kind of immediate response to it, but I, I think kind of what I was, uh, I was saying before that, like, I kind of try to make a point of not hating movies. That doesn't mean there aren't yeah. exceptions that like I hate because of how bad they are as movies. But I think, the weird thing is that I often the movies that I feel comfortable saying that I hate are usually movies that have their defenders because I think for a movie to be really like hate worthy, it has to kind of be the best possible version of itself and still be awful, which is why I bring up like the countless independent films that will never see the light of day. Like a, a movie that's great, you know, cream rises to the top. Whereas, like, really genuinely terrible movies have a tendency to just disappear. So who knows if this yeah. is in the bottom 100. The, the bottom 100 movies ever made have probably never been seen. But this is a movie that kind of feels like it fits in that, in, in, in that sort of paradigm. That, like, I do think that this movie is the best version of, a like, a truly <laughs> terrible script. Like, it's... It's well directed at points. Like I said, there's some panache behind the camera. I think to his credit, it got a major release. It got, got a, a major big release. Push. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. Yeah, it got a big budget. You kind of have to position it as like the kind of movies that hit theaters in that yeah. space. Like this is certainly one of the worst 100 movies I've ever, probably one of the worst 10 movies I've ever seen in theaters. Even if I didn't register it as such at the time. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I also. I'm not someone who can really like ironically watch something. If I hear a movie's bad, I tend to just steer clear. Avoid so it. So I I haven't racked up a ton of huge losses in my life. And so I do feel <laughs> like, e even if for just that reason, but then also there's just so much. Look, there is a lot to hate about this movie yeah. that we'll get into. So yeah, I'm going to, I won't prevaricate. This is one of the worst under movies I've ever seen. <laughs> Sorry, that was in classic dumb and dumb or -er fashion. That was a long walk for a short drink. But yeah, this is this is really bad. <laughs> um, I, I also concur. By the way, sorry, I, I should have mentioned this a moment ago. We were talking about like the the impact of the movie and how sweet sweet those summer children were back in the summer of two thousand and three. David Kerr's New York Times review, um, like describes the movie as the film is in fact a prequel to resurrect an already antique neologism. As if to say, we don't have to worry about prequels. We're not going to have prequels are done. done it's a medium. Prequels. It's just over and over. Surely this no will be more the last prequels. nail in the coffin of prequels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and for myself, um, I don't know, maybe. I mean, the problem is we've watched a lot of bad movies lately. We watched Speed 2 last week, yeah, which is another big thing. We're going dumb, through a list <laughs> of 100 awful movies, so this one is going to get edged out, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean,. You know, again, like, I, I wonder, do I watch two or three movies this bad every year is my question. Because it's like, I just, I got out of my, Michael Flatley's Blackbird last night, and I'm not sure if that's better or worse. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I saw you <laughs> posting about that. 
I'm not sure if it's better or worse than Dumber Dumberer, um, but we can maybe unpack that uh, that later on. And then finally, before we jump into the spoiler zone, if listeners have not seen Dumber Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? No, I wouldn't. And not just not just because it's bad, but just because like if you've seen Dumb and Dumber, you you know these characters enough to like I assume be able to follow along with the 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 basic shape of the conversation that like if if you've seen Dumb and Dumber, great. Like that's probably all you need to know going into this because that's really all this movie has going for it is like, I, I mean, admittedly a pretty good Jim Carrey impersonation. Yes. I think yes. that, I think that kid, uh, Eric Christian Olsen, not a kid. I mean, he's like, he's now you know, 40 uh, or 50, right? Yeah, exactly. But like at the time of making this, as he's portrayed, like he, he, it's, it's very thankless work, but I think he and the yes. other actor both do a good job of, of impersonating those characters. Even if like, his feels more like an impersonation of Lloyd, whereas I think the other actor whose name I'm I'm not sure. Derek Richardson, who's also from like Anger Management um, okay. and Men in Trees. And he he does a pretty good job of capturing... And the first Hostel, I think, as well. Oh, yes! No, 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 no. Good call. Good call. I remember... That's a very 2003 actor. I do remember <laughs> him now in the first Hostel. He gets... I think he gets the drill through the leg. Uh, spoiler alert for Hostel. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I think he does a pretty good job of kind of tapping into the sort of inherent decency of of the character, if that's not too bold to say. Because I think that is one of one of the this you know not to spend our entire time talking about a better movie, uh, God forbid. But I think one of the things that's so great about Dumb and Dumber is that, like like I said, it doesn't the the plot is not animated by how stupid they are the jokes are often animated by how stupid they are but most of the time the plot is like much more about jim carrey being a selfish narcissist who you know takes advantage of everyone he meets and jeff daniels being like a fundamentally pretty decent and earnest person who just lets his friend get away with far too much and i think i think that uh the 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 guy playing Harry in this one kind of taps into that a little bit and i so i think they do they do a pretty good job of bringing the characters to life but i i dare say that like whatever charm so it's a thankless it's a it's thankless a task thankless though because task. like what what brings those characters to life isn't just the mannerisms it's the fact that like you know Carrie was doing those mannerisms while improvising and investing like his energy yeah. which is like unreplicable yeah. like if, if hollywood could replicate what jim carrey did it wouldn't need to pay him would, 25 certainly. million dollars a movie. it's like how the democratic party keeps trying to engineer a new obama in the lab yes. <laughs> like there there is this weird energy to this movie where you're like, he's doing a pretty good imitation of a basically inimitable performance and character, but that's all it ever plays as. It's like, man, it's a pretty good imitation. It would, if this movie were a 10 minute fan film of the two of them meeting at the, the, you know, the back of the bus and getting made fun of and bonding over how they're both so goofy or, or going to the, or an SNL sketch. I, I was watching this and I was thinking this would be a pretty decent SNL sketch if you absolutely had to stretch to or, it. Or like going to the, the 7-Eleven and raising a ruckus in there before getting kicked out yeah, and then playing tag. By the Brian Potion. Yeah, exactly. Like you could see any one of these vignettes being like, oh, that's a perfectly serviceable short film. And I think people would, in that mode, people would be like, 
oh, great impersonations. That was a lot of fun. It would go viral and have a moment on Twitter, and that would be that. Uh, but then this movie packs like 75 more minutes around that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, like it, it not that is what Miller is known for. Yeah. It's very telling, as you said, that what Miller found his niche doing was those short films for those award ceremonies. All right, then and for myself, yeah, I, I would also struggle to recommend this for anybody. And I also would not recommend Dumb and Dumber 2 either. You you haven't missed out. Yeah. Um, Just to let you know. Um, there's a meanness to Dumb and Dumber 2, which is quite stunning. Really? It, it's really unpleasant. It, it's built around, a uh, slight spoiler, but it's built around the two characters being incredibly malicious to one another and being incredibly malicious to the people they meet in a way mm. that, as you said, Dumb and Dumber kind of gets away with because there's an element of they're not aware of how mean they're being. Yeah, that seems to miss the point of, of the characters. I think there are certainly yeah. times where Lloyd is aware of the fact that he's playing the villain um but you know this is just becoming a dumb and dumber podcast very quickly yeah sorry i i think i i do think there are times where lloyd is aware he's playing the villain but like you know when he puts the laxative into harry's drink to get him back yeah but it's that it's that thing of like because his his pettiness at that perceived slight is built on this foundation of i'm in love with a woman with whom i've spoken to for two minutes it it feels like oh okay yeah i can see this guy going there (laughs) (laughs) um all right then with that in mind we're gonna segue neatly into the spoiler zone we don't have andrew to cue us in so i'm just gonna jump straight to the question so raymond what is Dumb and Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd about for you? Uh, um, I mean, for me per- personally, or just... <laughs> um, however you want to frame that question, feel absolutely free. So if you want to talk about what's about thematically, yeah. what it represents to you personally, kind of, what you think the core or heart of the movie is in its black, dark soul. I kind of recounted or, or mentioned sort of up front about how convoluted this plot is. So without, like, revisiting that, you know, to me, the movie feels like something we were talking about just a second ago. It just, it feels like this very kind of cynical, uh, warmed overtake on a a movie that people have a lot of affection for, and I think justifiably so. And I think that's mainly what it's about, is just like trying to trying to trot out these characters and see how much affection exists just for the characters themselves. Because if this movie had been a huge hit, I don't know how this did at the box office. Um, it did $30 million on a $20 million budget. So probably just about eked into profitability. Yeah, okay. Slightly. So they probably broke even. Yeah. Um, Enough that nobody was like, let's do it again. Yeah, certainly. But you could imagine, I mean... Dumb and Dumber and Dumberer. Yeah, exactly. You you could imagine them being like, oh, okay, well, this is the new Harry and Lloyd. They do enough, uh, good enough impersonations. Like, you could see them doing more stupid adventures with these two if this had been a big hit. Just because, like, you know, they, they own this IP and no one can tell them not to. But I, I, this brings up a thing that I I mentioned before about the trailers of the film. That I don't know if yes. you watched the theatrical trailer for this. I did not. Okay, and I'm not sure how this was sold in Ireland or if it was sold at all there. <laughs> um, 
It probably would have. We, we are very, like, comedies do very well. I think the Simpsons movie is one of the top ten movies of all time at the Irish box office. Okay, so yeah. this this movie, I remembered the marketing of it almost more than I remembered the movie itself because the very first teaser trailer for it has no footage. It's just, like, 45 seconds of, like, the definition of dumb, then the definition of dumber, and then the definition of dumber-er. And the definition of dumber-er is something like adjective, trying to make a prequel to Dumb and Dumber. And then it just cuts to the title when Harry met Lloyd, and then you just hear the, the actors kind of giggling. And I even remember seeing that in theaters, and, and I was watching the movie with my uncle. I can't remember what it was, but he leaned over to me and he goes, well, I guess Jim Carrey's not in that because they definitely would would have shown Jim Carrey. And then the theatrical trailer for it started with New Line Cinema posting like it starts with the Lord of the Rings music. Of course it does. And because New Line owns both franchises, yeah. it says like prepare yourself for the journey of a lifetime and it's doing oh my god it's that's doing, the fucking that's that's the exact technique that that new line used with uh, austin powers the spy who shagged me okay that you remember that the commercial for that where they they did like if you only see one movie this summer see star wars the phantom menace but if, if you, you see, see two, two <laughs> see, yeah, yeah, yeah. see austin powers do the spy who shagged me. sorry for interrupting you there but no, obviously no, no. the new line cinema marketing department have a have a have a niche clearly they were <laughs> yeah. on one yeah be, and it just, it speaks to that thing that we've touched on before where like already playing these roles is a fairly thankless task, but it really makes you feel sorry for these guys. The way that like the marketing department is just leaning into the skid and saying like on that trailer after the, the Lord of the Rings shtick, it says like, see the movie that the original stars were too smart to make. Like it, like literally. That's not that's not verbatim. I'm paraphrasing. They they yeah. they may have said they, the original stars weren't dumb enough to make or something. But it's very yeah. very ungenerous to the the people who, uh, you know, the working actors who were willing to kind of put themselves out there and and be the face of a much beloved now franchise or whatever. Like it just so stuff like that just it just kind of reeks of cynicism in a way that like very clearly the marketing department is leaning into in the hopes that like, Oh, well, if we plug this thing shamelessly enough, it'll get people on board and think that like we're in on the joke. And, and, and like that to me is just, like I said before, that's the exact wrong way to get me interested in a movie. It just feels so cheap and so hollow. Uh, so cynicism, I guess, is what this movie means to me. <laughs> very, too, yeah, yeah, very, very two thousands esque. Like it's a very two thousands esque thing where it feels like that's where pop culture was at that moment. You kind of come out of the nineties, and the nineties are being a little bit cynical, and then in two thousands, it's just like no, no, straight up to kind of smart ass irony. Um, is that that line in The Simpsons? Are you being ironic? I don't even know anymore, man. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, there's a very bad version of that in this movie. Um. It, where she she asks him like are you being funny right now oh, or are you oh, actually no, 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 and then no. she starts to say the r word and yeah. she goes uh special and it's just it's that it's just that for an hour and a half and then every once in a while they take a break to be racist towards one woman and then yeah. it, it's just i mean it's just in that but that line that i just described is in the trailer 
Like that was their best foot forward. They, that was their selling point for the movie. And it's frankly, that. it's frankly astounding that not only like you can see how certain aspects of certain movies haven't aged well, but studio marketing departments notoriously pretty cagey and kind of playing their cards close to the vest. It's very shocking to see some of the stuff that they put in the trailer to front load this picture. It's bizarre. Yeah. No, like, and, and again, like that, that's the thing about it is that it, and again, like one of the things that came up in reviews, I think Manola Dargis at the LA times, like again, singled out how nasty the film is. And yeah, again, like one of the big knocks on it is the argument that like these two guys, as you say, labeling them. We talked about this before we went to the spores on the fact that it's not that they're dumb or they're unusual. It's the fact that the movie is like, no, they are mentally incapacitated. They are they are, as you said, pathologized. Yeah, they're like cog- um, they- or they're, they're being positioned as like cognitively disabled, even though yeah. I imagine there was a discussion at some point in the boardroom of New Line where they were like, well, yeah, but really, the you know, the bad guys are the ones who are putting them or in that labeling pos- or them, labeling yeah. them because they're not actually. So we're never actually punching down. It's like, no, you're punching down. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, as you say, the line is like, in case the audience doesn't get it, you have Rachel Nichols character actually saying, are you the or are you re re? Yeah. And as if to prompt the audience. It's yeah, it's gross. It's folks. kind of it's something. It's something that I don't think the film can come back from. Heed and as my you said, warning like the, from the first from the third question. <laughs> yeah. um, hopefully, you haven't paused the podcast and watched because it's too late to go back now. But like, yeah, like, and even as you mentioned the Cindy stuff, the Cindy stuff, which is like, and again, it's the thing where I'm watching Dumb and Dumber, and I'm like. I was watching Dumb and Dumber and expecting to cringe through it. And to be honest, there is like one gay panic joke in there, which is the truck stop one. But outside of that, it's fairly decent as far as 90s comedies go. And in fact, a lot of the stuff ended up in the extended cut. The extended cut, don't watch the extended extended cut. The extended cut is rough. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I I always think the one time I watched the extended cut, I was like, oh man, they really saved themselves in the edit. And even this is not me defending gay panic by any means because I, I, I think that stuff was pervasive in the 90s. But even that one scene at the truck stop bathroom is just one of those, like, you know, wrong place, wrong time things. And then who walks in but the guy he hit in the head with a salt the, shaker. The, yeah. So it's one of those things where it's like, you you could say, like, oh, yeah, this sucks because it's gay panic. But there's also at least a layer of, like, baseline antagonism and adversarial relationship dynamic between the two of them. That's not to defend the, you know, more problematic oh, yeah. aspect. No, absolutely. Like, it, there are far, far worse jokes in, in much, much worse movies, to be clear. But that's the Whereas thing about this other... movie is it makes Dumb and Dumber look extremely layered and nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that's it. That was like the segue to talk going back to the fact that there is an entire character in this movie, Cindy, played by Michelle Kruzek, whose entire thing is that like they make fun of her for being Asian. Yes. They presume she's Chinese and they make the funny accents and noises and stuff, which, by the way, is a joke that Dumb and Dumber 2 inexplicably brings back. They don't bring back the character. Oh, really? But they reveal that, like, um, that yeah. Harry's parents... They're playing all the hits. So. Yeah, they're playing all... The, there are moments when you're watching this and it's like, surely... No, I don't assume the Farley's ever watched this, but it's like, surely if you watch this, you would make notes and realize these things don't work. But there is like where Harry's parents are revealed to be a middle-aged, like Asian couple, um, and they're talking Chinese and there's Lloyd does the stuff that all the kids do here, which is the making of the funny noises and the, um, 
there's a love you long time joke inexplicably in Dumb and Dumber 2. Oh, is there really? Uh, I was... There is. Welcome to, welcome to like, 2014, apparently. Yeah. Um, but Ugh. but here, like, there's the weird thing where, like, she's they, they do that stuff with her. And then at the end, they have the twist where she can speak perfect English. Yeah, but then they she's... do the double twist where she does it to attract boys. Because apparently, um, Eldon Henson is apparently so irresistible that the only way to lure him is to... Is that Turk? That's, <laughs> that is Turk. Uh, fan favorite Turk. I mean, the audience just, they want more Turk. That was the big note we got from the studio, kind of like from the test screenings. Yeah. More Turk all the time. That's that's the thing is like, I mentioned how this movie's so bad, it, it makes Dumb and Dumber look very nuanced by comparison. Like, I think the the scene where they introduce her character, and this is, I'm not, I'm not saying this ironically, uh, I, I find no humor in this, but her character's name in the credits is quite literally the words Ching Chong. It is, yes. And when they introduce her character, Lloyd says that to her a bunch of times because he thinks that is speaking Chinese. And the movie is not like the movie is like i know the difference between depiction and endorsement yeah the movie is not saying look what an idiot lloyd is that he he thinks he's speaking chinese right now the movie is saying look how funny it is to make these noises to a woman of color's face and i think in that way it kind of takes the cake as like the absolute worst bit of this movie because Despite this film's pervasive ableism, there's no point at which they make an explicitly ableist joke at a literally disabled person. At the person. expense of a, yes. And it's, I mean, that is a very low bar, and I don't think any aspect of this movie should be applauded for <laughs> for clearing it. In <laughs> for any the capacity. restraint. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't describe this as subtle in any way. But, like, that, that was a bit where... Um, I had completely forgotten about that, and I was watching this. She probably doesn't want to be dragged into this, but my my girlfriend is Korean, and when that came up, she was like, "How did this happen?" Like, just in two thousand three, yeah, and legitimate. She was just asking, and then there's another scene where that character is speaking to them in what they believe is her her native tongue. Oh, and he's translating, isn't it? Turk is translating, isn't there something like that? Yes. The thing? And then it leads to the bit where she's doing the dance and stuff uh, about the float. And she's very clearly kind of doing a version of what Lloyd was doing. And uh, once again, my girlfriend turned to me and she was like, is this supposed to be someone who's actually speaking Mandarin or are they just now making her do the same? And it's just like, it's so many levels of gross where it's just like, and it's so unforced. Yeah. It, it's just one of the, it's, it comes back to that thing that I think is kind of like the mantra of this movie is like trying so hard to just fit its foot into its mouth. It works so hard to do absolute terrible things things that nobody should try to do yeah it's just bizarre the 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 end goal is not something you want to accomplish but the movie bends over backwards to do it anyway is is kind of what's what's stunning about it because it's like if you took the character of cindy out you would still have a half dozen supporting characters in the group and none of them would be classics i mean i mean we are all there for yeah i mean Turk, Turk Hive. We are all big fans of the Shia LaBeouf of it all. We got to talk about Lewis. Oh, yes. Yeah. So this is <laughs> yeah. this is another thing I remember in anticipation of this film, which uh, feels gross to say now. But I was a huge fan of Even Stevens. I really, really liked Shia LaBeouf. That was the show he was on on the Disney Channel. 
And, you know, those Disney Channel shows, your mileage may vary. But I think a lot of people would agree there was something different about him. He had a, a certain star power magnetism to him at a, at a very young age. And well, there's a reason Spielberg kind of latched on to him as you're going to be the next thing. You're going to be my next Drew Barrymore type project by Richard Dreyfus or whatever. Like you're going to be sure. the Spielberg machine is going to work for you. And you you could kind of see I was like weirdly invested in his career early on because he was an actor who was my age when I was an aspiring comedian and actor who was like you know he was he was doing the thing he was uh, so i i was like anything that he was in i would go to which is probably one of the reasons i checked this out and i do remember leaving the theater being like man they they really didn't do anything with Shia LaBeouf he's just kind of there <laughs> but there is something that is like is is you know the idea of it is funny and uh, thankfully mostly harmless that like yes he's this guy who's like a professional mascot and he goes around to pass out flyers at places and he has to wear different costumes depending on where he's passing out flyers so the first time that they meet him he's he's wearing a horse mascot uniform and he takes off the horse's head and they're like oh it's a half man half horse and he like he should be in the class yeah he should be like that's that's special that's different and, like, there's a germ of an idea there where, you know, I got a slight chuckle out of, like, when he was dressed as a son. Dressed as a son. And they say, don't look at yeah, him. Don't, don't look, look directly, directly at him. Because he's passing out flyers for the tanning salon or whatever. But then, once again, all of that serves as this very labored setup for, like, the pirate thing at the end. That Harry has a uh, an imaginary friend who's a pirate. And then, at the end of the movie, Shia LaBeouf is dressed as a pirate and Lloyd thinks it's Harry's imaginary friend come to life, and once again they do basically nothing with that. So I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah. So the Shia LaBeouf of it all, you know, I don't, I don't want to necessarily sing his praises at this point in his career, but he does feel like he was a very talented young actor who feels like he was really wasted, so that this movie could just go off and make really cheap jokes here and there. They have, uh, if we're going to keep going through the group, they have one. <laughs> One football player who got his, like got totally rinsed during football practice, and now he he seems to have been like concussed. Uh, yeah. So that's the closest the movie comes to actually having someone who's like cognitively impaired in the class. And then does he? I, I watched this movie twice, and I should know this, but does he pay off at the end? Isn't no, not really. He 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 they they like make him run out of the room because they get him amped up for a football yeah, game like, he smashes through the wall smashes yeah, he smashes through the wall. Through the wall and that's it right yeah pretty i think that's the last big gag with him um and then the one guy i mentioned before who's like a skateboarder who broke his arm and seems to have like maybe twisted his ankle while skateboarding and they think that he's he's disabled because he has a cast on his arm um, so they recruit him to that effect, uh, but he's basically, like I said, he's he just seems like an early aught skater dude who's just kind of there yeah. making out with his girlfriend the whole time. And there's no real jokes around, like not that not that what we've described with the Shia yeah. LaBeouf and the football player count as jokes, but there's there's no real kind of like comedic premise to him as a character. He's just in the group and not he's really. making out with his girlfriend. There's no yeah. All of these are just kind of like to the extent that they are jokes, they're all just one note of like, oh, a kid with a cast, that's a disability. Yeah. A kid, a kid with a concussion, that's a disability. And it, like, it just is. That's I think that's the thing that's so shocking about this movie is that like half of its runtime is just trying to like create 
able-bodied facsimiles of what are perceived as disabilities. And it's just like, what are we doing here? I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like this, I feel like we're just in an eddy, like every single, every single discussion point just comes back to this notion of like why, why? yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the profound question that we ask ourselves like because this is the thing i'm watching it and this is a movie that is not like you imagine like when harry met lloyd and again seltzer and friedberg they're the people that i keep coming back to when i think of movies like these these terrible comedies from like the 2000s or whatever and it's like this is not quite that because it's like it cast is has actual talented people in it now it doesn't let them be talented but it has like people like bob saget who's like a staple of american television comedy and sherry o'terry i think is very funny in this as well occasionally she's she has a few good bits in this yeah i mean what the thing with with sherry go go on about bob saget or well the only thing to note about bob saget is that it has one joke for him and it does it twice and it extends that joke to the point where it's like agonizing twice and it's the ending beat of the movie like that's what the movie yeah. wants you to take away is that like bob is saget bob got... saget saying the word <laughs> which i'm gonna have to because this is a family-friendly podcast i'm gonna have to somehow some, something over that <laughs> i've been trying to avoid curse words yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but you can just imagine what word it is that bob saget's saying if you haven't seen he's, the movie he's saying crap you know he's saying crap yes he is saying crap but like very loud and it just keeps going and it's like it's one note it's like you've got crap all over my house and it's like okay that's enough to end on no 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 bob you don't have to keep going crap all over my windows okay bob we got it crap all over my towels bob it's okay we got it crap all over my feckin walls and it's like it's like how do you get crap on the ceiling it's like bob it's okay we, we got the note yeah. we get what this joke is why are you just yelling that word and objects why does the movie think this is funny and then as you said you come back to the end and they do the exact same thing again. And once again, it's like the the most contrived and labored setup where uh, I think to trace they meet it. They the felchers in a, in, a, in a mythology gag, an in-joke, oh, and a reference. No, but I was, okay. was going to say the first time that it does it. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yes, that, oh, that, that is also a mythology well. gag. You're right. Cause that's a reference it's to obviously. A reference Lloyd's. to the toilet scene in the first one, yeah. but also the the setup in this movie is Harry or Harry's toilet scene. Harry is going to meet Jessica and Lloyd says, you should buy her some chocolates. So he gets her a Hershey bar, which he puts in his back pocket. And then he, when he's talking to Jessica in her room, he leans on the radiator kind of casually, which melts the chocolate in his pocket. And then when he gets to the bathroom, he finds the melted chocolate in his pocket. It's just like there, there are just so many, <laughs> so many steps. needles that have to be threaded to get to what is ultimately a nothing of a payoff. And you, yeah. you bring up the Felchers. This is something I was, I was going to say too, because like comparing this to Friedberg and Seltzer, I think is maybe more fitting than you might be giving it credit for because those movies notoriously are just like no jokes, just references like yes the to the extent that there is a joke it's just like oh what if juno was in sparta or what whatever happens in the trailer for meet the spartans these or two things that you recognize yeah. are together with carmen electra two, two great tastes that taste awful together <laughs> and this movie weirdly does that except the only references it makes are to dumb and dumber <laughs> like <laughs> Very like, fair. This movie is kind of doing that. And the reason that there is like 
to the extent that there is any mileage that you can get out of it is that like once again on a rewatch of Dumb and Dumber I was kind of taken aback at like I've seen that movie so many times but watching it sort of more critically this time I was kind of stunned at how not just how every scene moves the narrative forward but how every scene has a moment or a quote or a beat that became that, sort of yeah. imprinted in the cultural lexicon Mimetic, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, it sort of predates our, like... Yeah, our understanding of memes, exactly, but yes, like... that People saying, I like it a lot. That's sort of, which this movie does as well, to be clear. Yeah, a couple of times. And that's that's the thing, is, like, this movie is constantly just pulling, like, whatever the meme moment or line would be from those, those moments or vignettes in the first one, like... Yeah. When they get the brain freeze in the parking lot, that is kind of the obverse of the hot peppers in the original where, like, it's just a pretext for a gross-out gag of, like, the ketchup and mustard getting blasted on their face in the yeah. original, or in this one, the slushies falling out of their lips yeah. uh, as their brains freeze over. And then they bring the ketchup and mustard back later in this movie. When... For the message on the floor with the with the well, gray Christmas. That... There's that earlier on, and then later in the movie, they have ketchup and mustard all over them when they go talk to Jessica, and he's like, yeah, Harry stuck his wiener in my ear, and then it shows them yeah, okay, eating yes. hot dogs and putting it... Dogs from a mobile hot dog truck, yeah. And it's just, it's similar to the Friedberg and Seltzer thing of like, you know, what was funny about the original was not that they had ketchup and mustard on them. What was funny is how, like, brazen and confident they were in eating these peppers and the lengths that they go to cool off their mouths it's a very stupid sight gag but then it also serves as this wonderful setup for establishing how lethal these peppers are when they load up mike star's burger with it (laughs) like that's the great thing about that movie is like there are jokes that you don't realize are setups until they pay off five minutes later as jokes of their own and even if you're not paying attention, you could easily miss that. Like, again, as 100%. you said, Screenwriting 101, like, it, it's, it's, and I suspect that's what happens here. And again, this, it's, I feel weird, I feel bad that this sounds like Darren's laying a lot of modern pop culture's foibles at the feet of Dumb and Dumber when Harry met Lloyd. But, like, a lot of modern culture is that. It's that thing you remember from that other thing. Like, if you look at something like, say, Jurassic Park Dominion, and it's like, it's the scenes that you replay from the original. It's like, okay, well, Alan Grant is working at a dig. A helicopter arrives. It blows sand over the bones because you remember seeing that in Jurassic Park. It ignores, like, the context of the scene, which is in Jurassic Park that tells you about John Hammond. It tells you that he doesn't care about the dig. Whereas in Dominion, it's just a reference to an image or an object that you remember out of context. Sure. And there, yeah, there's so... I- so much of that here. I never saw um, Dominion, but I did see the trailer where the the T Rex head goes into like the circle of like a yes to, cre- to create the logo. Yes, and to create the logo seeing, from just watching the trailer. It wasn't something I was interested in to begin with, but just seeing that moment, I was like, well, that just uh, that that's what the entire. I just imagine who uh, you know, Colin Trevorrow pitching that to the guys at Universal, just like, oh, and then the T-Rex's head shows up in the circle, and they're like, all right, green light, yeah. And it's like the poster. People are going to go crazy. <laughs> That's the moment. Let's do it, blah, blah, blah. Like, and that is what, that that to me is, like what you were saying, so much of modern film culture is just trying to, like, take the shortcut to your, your emotions. That thing that people or, remember. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and you have it here as well, like with the Felchers, like you, you mentioned Jurassic World Dominion. Jurassic World Dominion is built around the return of Dodson. We got Dodson here. Dodson? It's like D- 
Dodson is the character who buys, like, who gives Nedry the can in the original Jurassic Park. Oh, wow. The guy, the, the barber. Yeah, everyone was so, he, was on pins and needles wondering whatever happened to Dodson. I mean, what, what's really great is that, like, there's a scene in Jurassic Park where he's like, nobody cares. Like, when he's like, we got Dodson here. Nobody cares. Um, which feels like a very biting satirical comedy on, like, a, a, a prescient, a prescient critique of Jurassic World Dominion. Yeah. Yeah. But like you have the same thing here where it's like in Dumb and Dumber you have the offhand reference to like Freda Felcher and it's like as the one who got Which away. Which is just a name. It could it could It's just a name. Just a name. Yeah. And and here you have like oh no, but we gotta show her and we gotta build a thing around her and the crowd is gonna go wild. When they see Rita and uh, Frida Felcher, it's going to be like that moment where Captain America picks up the hammer in Avengers Endgame. <laughs> the audience is going to be like, wow, we, we finally saw it. We finally got to see uh, Frida Felcher. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's exhausting and it's weird to watch it in hindsight. Yeah, it, it is one of those things that like, if you're not watching the unrated cut of Dumb and Dumber, like that conversation is not, it's not trying to establish some deep mythology or lore surrounding the characters it's just to establish that lloyd is not a good friend and that harry is a kind of down on his luck sort of you know he doesn't have the confidence that is uh, lloyd has for some unknown reason you know (laughs) like that's that is a moment that is informing you about those characters not informing you about Freda Felcher. That doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it's not setting up a domino as you said to pay off. It's a, like it's not like the movie itself doing the long walk to like that big domino moment. Exactly. That's like you know, like uh, Miller kind of Troy Miller sitting there going, "Well, they they walked. They did the legwork so that we could do the payoff." Um, yeah, and 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 I think that that brings to mind sort of just like I mentioned that these two movies kind of serve as this object lesson in like the the do's and do nots of almost just basic screenwriting where like the way that Harry and Lloyd are introduced in the first movie when Lloyd rolls up to the you know he he sees a pretty lady on the curb and he in the limo yes. and he he parks his limo and then he crawls into the back so he can pretend to be the passenger in the limo rather than the driver and he can chat up this this lovely lady and that tells you everything you need to know about him that he is a stupid, b horny, <laughs> um, and also cynical, as you said. Like yeah, exactly, he's, he's more cynical than C- Harry is. And C, he's... a very unscrupulous, a bit of a trickster. Yes. And D, and I think this is important to his character. He's obsessed with wealth and status. Yeah. And when you meet Harry, he is stopping to get fast food for these dogs that he's taking to a dog show. And when he gets to the dog show, they're covered in ketchup and mustard, uh, which is just, of course, the the motif of these of all these films. <laughs> these movies, if you were to tie it all they're, together, they're covered in ketchup and mustard. But and uh, the uh, but he has the moment where he explains the owner it's okay because he like, primped and I, tidied them earlier. He put I the work in. in he was work. being thoughtful. Yeah, and and she you know screams when she sees the dogs. But even though that was a faux pas on his part, it tells you what you need to know about Harry yeah. and how these guys are different kinds of dumb. That like Harry's the kind of dumb who will mess up doing something nice for someone else, whereas Lloyd is the kind of dumb who will make doing something mean to someone else even worse. And yeah. it, it it is just like it's perfect narrative economy, lets you know everything you need to know about these characters and their principles, which will generate new conflict throughout the movie. 
And then in this movie, they just kind of expect all of that already to be baked into the cake and for you to know these characters. And because like the introductions to these characters are basically like, you know, Harry's kind of affable, but dim-witted and that's about it. And then Lloyd is, you know, dim-witted and likes to dance around a high school. And it's just like, yeah. just just that 1A and 1B between these movies. This this movie does that thing that franchise entries so often do, which is that it, it takes your familiarity with these characters for granted. It doesn't give you a reason to get reinvested in them. This yeah. is something that, like, I know you're a big fan of this movie. I'm not so much. It's something that I kind of took exception with. I don't. I don't want to derail the conversation. But no. In uh, on on again on the yeah, two fifty exactly thing. Right. It's like I mean, um, you get in the spirit of the thing. So but go for it. In something like the Batman, I remember there were a lot of people talking about like oh, uh, the the conversation between Bruce and Alfred in the hospital is very touching. And I think in its way, it kind of is. But also, I didn't feel like this new version of Bruce and Batman had been like well enough established for me emotionally to be invested in that conversation. The problem with that conversation is that it, it, it immediately follows an earlier, one conversation, one scene earlier that changes everything you think you know about the character, yeah. and then you bounce into a, an immediate conversation in the next scene that changes everything you thought you just knew about the character. Yeah. And so there's no emotional grounding to it. And I say that as somebody who quite likes the movie. No, no, I I, I agree with you. But in, in addition to that, I do not know this Bruce, and I do not know this Alfred well enough to be invested in just their human emotion. Like, I just yeah. don't think the movie has even done that legwork. I, it feels like the movie is kind of just coasting on your recognition of these characters and their established relationship yeah, dynamic. The fact that you've seen six Twelve Batman movies, movies with Bruce exactly. and Alfred. Yeah. That's the- that's not to take a, you know, a stray shot at the Batman. That is a far better movie than oh, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that I, is... I, was hope, I was hoping that you weren't setting up, well, you know, Dumb and Dumber at least is not the Batman. <laughs> but <laughs> but that, I think that is, that, that one just kind of came to mind because to yeah. me that was maybe the most recent example I can think of. Of a franchise movie. And a high profile one and one that like is, is one that's seen as being good. and Exactly. Just saying like, you know who these guys are, just go. With yeah, them. where it doesn't derail the movie. It's, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, as you say, it's not something that derails or trips over the movie. It's something the movie just does because that's what movies do now kind of thing. But yeah, no, like that, that's, yeah, that is, that is one of the many, many, many problems with the movie. And like, I'm looking at the cast and the cast of this is pretty decent. Which is the thing. Like, if you run down a list, it has, like, Louise Guzman is in here. He plays yes. Ray Christmas, the gender. is given nothing to nothing do. To do. Um, nothing to do whatsoever. And also, I, I, I mentioned elitism earlier. Like, this movie's attitude toward custodial and service professionals is very, like, very gross. Um, this is including the convenience store clerk played by Brian Poston. Brian Poston. I, I think it's Poston. Um, Hussein, sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, no, it's a, no, no big deal. I don't know him, <laughs> um, and, <laughs> but I do. I do think a lot of people uh, have trouble with his name. I, but I, I think it's Hussein. I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, Keep in mind, I, I mispronounced uh, Sydney mythology. Going, <laughs> you also so. you also call me Raymond Kramer, which would have set Raymond my Kramer, I'm sorry. no, no, no. It's all good. It would have set my dad on edge. Anytime someone uh, calls my dad Kevin Kramer, he goes Kramer like coffee. Get it right. He always gets mad. <laughs> um, I kind of roll with the punches a bit more. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's but, all good. Yeah, like, but you're you're right, actually. So just, yeah, about that. Like, the, the, the kind of service difference there. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that was one thing I do. You asked me what I remembered from uh, my first viewing of the film. That was one thing that stood out to me even then because I was, 
I weirdly uh, had a very close relationship with one of the uh, custodians at my grade school. Uh, he was a really, really talented artist, and I was really into sketching and painting when I was younger. And he had seen one of my things hanging in the hallway for, you know, art class, fifth grade or whatever. And he was like, oh, you know, this is this is really cool. You've got a, a cool eye and stuff. And he would bring me books on artists and he would help introduce me to like different movements and different styles and like color theory and just weird stuff like that. That was all way over my head as a kid. But we kept in touch like well into high school. So I remember watching this and feeling like. God, the amount of jokes that they're making that like the entire joke is just that someone is a janitor or that someone is a janitor's son kind of goes along with that 90s and early aughts impulse of like, oh, the joke is that they're gay or the joke is that they're different or the joke is that they work a job that I wouldn't want to work. And that is just like the movie doesn't it's not as pervasive as the ableism in this film, obviously, like, but it's just one of those things that, like you said, you've got Luis Guzman, who's, I I mean, an incredible screen presence. And then when you watch the trailer for this movie, it seems like there's a lot of stuff with him that ended up on the cutting room floor. Like, there, there's a weird sequence in the trailer that appears to be like a musical sequence in the high school where he and Harry and Lloyd are all like dancing around with all these like neon lights and stuff. Like, and it and it looks like, oh, you could you could have had some fun with this character, and and Lord knows when you've got Luis Guzman, don't waste him. Um, and again, like and and another one as well, Mimi Rogers as well, who kind of again coming out of the nineties, coming sure. into the two thousands. Uh, you okay, Eugene Levy, who you know again at this stage is kind of just coasting on the I've got a second career wind off uh, American uh, pie. I I think he described his work here as being his character work consisting of growing a mustache that was halfway between Hitler and Groucho Marx. And that was pretty much as much work as he put into the character. He's he's kind of interesting to talk about. Listen to Levy talk about his process where it's like, I'll get the script. The script isn't great. I'll make some notes. I'll talk to the director and then I'll do it anyway. Um, (laughs) But it's... (laughs) But, uh, and as you said, Sherry Otty. Oh, sorry. Uh, Sher- oh, I was just about, about to say, there. Sherry O'Terry. Um, Sherry O'Terry. Uh, I think that every once in a while, she and Eugene Levy are a, a rather inspired pair. Um, they, they're both really, really solid on-screen comic per- uh, presences just in general. And I think they, I think they do make a good duo. Like once again, a lot of their scenes are defined by the prerequisite problematic aspects of the movie. But then there are just some... You know, what's that old adage that, like, anyone can say a funny thing, but comedians say things funny? There are a handful of line readings in this that get a chuckle out of me from Sherry O'Terry, where she's, like, seducing him with the morning's lunch menu. Uh, You know, just little things like that, where you're just like, oh, yeah, these two were clearly having fun on, like, the three days that they were there for the production or whatever. Um, And Eugene Levy has... There's one line that I remember uh, uh, getting a laugh was... um, uh, Eugene Levy's talking about because they're running the scam and he goes you know what we're gonna do is we're we're uh we're we're gonna like get this and that and blah 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 and then we'll finally track down that reporter and she goes and kill her and he goes no no we're just we're pretty much just gonna take the money <laughs> and she goes oh okay and then there's one I mean, yeah that's Oh, they do that joke as well. It's one of those jokes where it's a good enough joke that the movie's like, we'd only have a handful of these. So let's hit it twice. Yeah. Where it's like, where it's like, look, he's giving out benefits for for special needs classes all over the states. So you know what we need to do? We need to kill him and take the money. It's like, no, no. <laughs> then there's there's one other. I think uh, even on this rewatch, one bit in the movie that I thought was genuinely very funny and well conceived. That 
the newspaper reporter who's a student at the school has been kidnapped by Eugene Levy. Yes. And she goes, well, my parents will look for me. And he goes, well, one call from the principal will change that. And then he calls her parents and pretends to be someone else. He pretends to be her friend. Bethany. Yeah. Yeah, Or like new friend, Bethany. (laughs) And he so like, and so overplays the bit. And again, it feels like one of those things where it's just like, we let, we let Levy or let Levy kind of just do his thing. We just kind of let him loose on the phone and just filmed him. And it kind of, because there's a bit where he like over eggs the pudding and it works remarkably. It's like, but she's macroeconomics. (laughs) And then I said, no. And then she said, yes. And then I said, ring your parents. She said, what? Ring my parents. I said, what? No, Bethany. I I knew. Um, And then there's, there's one point where like, when they established, the gag they cut to him on the payphone saying like hi it's bethany uh your your daughter's friend and then there's one point where you can t- you can't hear what's happening on the other end of the line but you can tell that like whatever they bought it because then he does like a little fist pump like okay i'm in um, yeah. like that is a genuinely very well conceived gag and it fits within the universe of like once again if like dumb and dumber this movie were about two guys who are extraordinarily stupid and a world around them that is increasingly outrageous and hostile in weird ways, like, that gag perfectly fits into Harry and Lloyd, but in high school. Um, but, man, oh, man, it's, like, maybe it just feels a lot better just because it's, you know, it's it's shade in the desert. It's, it's an oasis yeah. in a dense <laughs> It's supporting a storm. For those like 15 seconds that it's happening, you don't have to worry about the rest of the movie around it. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of kind of, is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to Dumb and Dumb? No. Is there anything else kind of jumping up? <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> talk about any of this. <laughs> you suggest this was, t- I want to remind you, this was your no, pitch. No, I know. But I, well, hold on. But you, I didn't exactly leap at it. You, you quite no. graciously, and I'm, I am quite thankful for that. You said, "Oh, we'd love to have you on the podcast," and you said, "Here's a list of the 250 greatest movies of all time. Take your pick." And I got to pick one of my favorite <laughs> movies to talk about with you guys later. And then you go, "And here's the absolute. It's like the monkey's paw curling." You go, here's the absolute dress. Also, pick I, one of these. I apologize if no, the implication was that you had to pick no, one. I like that. It's like that—that's Sophie. Like it's, it's the choice. You have to pick one. You can get. You could talk about high and low, but you're also going to talk about dumb and dumber. Yeah, I was um, sitting around listening listening to your podcast years ago, going, "Man, oh man, I, it would be a dream to guest on the 250." And then just the monkey's paw finger curling is like cut cut to me me having to talk about how racist and ableist this terrible movie is um we uh, uh, just a small small thing worth noting as well um just because it's, it's something i was thinking about while watching this the terrible jim carrey less sequels um including son of the mask which is also on the bottom 100 oh sure and also is that jamie kennedy that is yet jamie kennedy and alan cumming inexplicably um alan cumming would never make a bad movie <laughs> um and then ace ventura pet detective jr and evan almighty as well and to give the movie some credit, I say very slowly and very carefully, it's worth situating this in the context of, uh, like, the, the media boom, the physical media boom of the early 2000s, oh, where apparently, apparently this is a terrible, well, not apparently, this is a terrible movie, to be clear, but apparently it is also a very good DVD. It's apparently a surprisingly good DVD, which is... Not surprising when you consider Miller's strengths, where it includes a French version of the movie, which includes all the actors re-recording their dialogue with bad French accents. Uh, It includes an extended cut of the movie, which plays the movie at half regular speed. It includes a pillow version of the movie, which you can watch while sideways. 
and it projects kind of like <laughs> sideways up the side. <laughs> See, it's already funnier. They than have it. the same. They have the same thing on a uh, uh, one Alexander Payne film. I can't think of the title though. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, sideways um, <laughs> was the title. Oh, did you actually have the side? No, no, no. They have, no, no, s- nice. have some watch sideways, sideways. I was doing, I was doing a bit. But. Oh, sorry. Um, that feels like the kind of thing. I'm not sure. Pain. I don't know. I can't really judge pain. I don't know if pain is in on it. I don't know if pain would be like Anderson. What you could see would maybe do it. There, there I'm not sure you could see pain. One one time when I was watching, um, when when I was in college and only had my laptop to watch movies on. And I remember exactly one time I tried that where I like I was laying down and I put my laptop on its side so the movie would be oriented correctly. But it was that thing of like, you know, you get motion sick in cars because your brain is moving, but it's not perceiving movement. (laughs) And I was just like, this is just wrong. Like, I'm on my side, but the image is upright. This doesn't make sense. And I just had to watch the movie side, like put the laptop back down and watch it sideways. It's the only way to make my brain not hurt. Yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah. So that that is it then. So just we've given the movie credit. We've acknowledged everything that is due. Um, anything else you want to talk about? Anything else with regards to Last Chance to talk about Dumb and Dumber, Dumb and Dumber, or even Dumb and Dumber 2, Dumb which Dumber you haven't 2. seen? Um, I guess I guess my final thoughts on this are just I do just want to reiterate that, like, I, I think that you can learn a lot more about screenwriting and filmmaking from watching legitimately bad movies than you can sometimes from watching really great movies when because the good stuff makes it look effortless is it yeah in a way you know when i'm watching a great movie my brain is just off i give myself over to the power of cinema right and then when you're watching a bad movie that doesn't make any sense and that just feels off or weird or is bad or boring like that's when your brain comes on and you start thinking about the things the movie doesn't want you to think about (laughs) and I do think that if if you are interested just kind of in like, if you can stomach, all, not to go back on my answer to the third question, if you can stomach all the all the bile that we've sort of outlined over the past hour and a half, this movie and its predecessor do make a very interesting kind of 1A and 1B in terms of like, not just like narrative economy, but just the basic like, what is a protagonist? Like, what is what is narrative agency? Like, characters making choices, revealing character through those choices. I think Dumb and Dumber is a great example of all of the above, and Dumb and Dumber fails conclusively at all of the above. So I do think there is something perhaps instructive about watching, if not this movie, then movies like it. So that's kind of all, all I will say. And I do just want to reiterate, I think... It's real easy to go hard on this movie. It deserves it. This movie sucks. But like the the marketing for this film really really did the two stars of it dirty. And I think they're probably like granted they say and do some terrible stuff, but I think just the, you know, the very game imperson uh, impersonations and and energy that they bring to it. I think that is kind of commendable in its way. This was a very thankless task and for the most part they they do a pretty good job of embodying these characters. But um, I'm curious, Darren, from your perspective, is there anything that you would want to leave people with from Dumb and Dumber 2 since you've actually seen that one? 
No, just the nastiness of it, I think, is what kind of took me aback. It's it's again like this one. This feels weirdly like a movie, like a nineties comedy that you watch and you're like, Man, things were really different back then. And you're like, How much we've grown as a society. How different um, were they? <laughs> yeah, that I know. That that is the that is the implication. Um and you watch Dumb and Dumber too, and it's like somehow this movie from twenty years after Dumb and Dumber feels more rooted in like all the terribleness that you associate with like late 80s early 90s comedy Uh, and it's just it's so unpleasant and so nasty and so mean-spirited and so vindictive and like and again late Farley Brothers stuff where it's like it's just references to things like there's a gag that hinges on Breaking Bad was ending like around the time that this came out and I'd forgotten that this came out around the time that Breaking Bad was ending and the only reason I know is because there's a joke about cooking meth blue meth in the movie inexplicably weird and it's yeah it's it's very that, very strange that, it's, you know on the friedberg and seltzer note like i've never seen their three stooges adaptation but i i remember from the trailer that like the three stooges are on a couch with like snooki from jersey shore yeah. just stuff like that where i'm just like you know i may not be the biggest fairly brothers fan but i am a big dumb and dumber fan and hearing you talk about the sequel to it and you know considering some of their other work and also considering the unrated extended dumb and dumber cut it does make you wonder like do they even get what works about dumb and dumber or were they just kind of saved in the edit and i i don't know i think i think that is worth examining yeah i mean well that that is that is the thing where it's like like did they look into the and again part of it's like you're different you're a different artist at different times in your career and it's like even spielberg who is like one of the greats of american cinema is a very different director than he was 20 years ago and the farleys are not not spielberg not to uh uh not to to suggest that comparison (laughs) but like yeah with with them it's kind of interesting because like as they go on it's weird how they had such a short shelf life like it's weird like as a duo They were really hot in the 90s. Obviously, you had the run of Dumb and Dumber, Something About Mary, arguably Kingpin as well, right? And then, like, once you hit to the the 2000s, they get really rocky. You've got, like, Stuck on You, which nobody remembers. They have the one with, uh, was it Ben Stiller and Marlene Eckerman, which I can't remember either. They have, like, the Three Stooges movie that you mentioned. They have Dumb and Dumber 2. They have Hall Pass. None of those movies make any impression whatsoever in terms of cultural impact. I forgot about Shallow Hell. Shallow Hell is awful and made an impact but in a terrible way they did they direct shallow Hell? let me just go to the fact machine and check that um this is what happens when i don't have a yeah. co-host <laughs> yep they did they directed i didn't realize did. shallow hell is uh, another another one of those movies that like perfectly encapsulates the sort of like well-meaning but ultimately insensitive thing of like shallow hell's amazing because it's this movie about how like oh you need to embrace your inner beauty no matter what you look like but then everyone's inner beauty manifests as like traditionally beautiful people and like you never see someone and serves as a framework for fat jokes yeah like it's like you can't have the best of both worlds you can't be like it it's just trying to have its cake (laughs) and eat it too it doesn't matter if you're fat but if you're fat we'll make jokes about you weirdly the movie never portrays someone's inner beauty as being like i don't know ugly or uh disabled or fat even though the movie has like ugly like quote-unquote ugly and disabled and fat characters like 
that, that, that movie is just very, very icky. <laughs> in, in, yeah. Like, and almost worse because you know they think they're, they're like patting themselves on the back for like, oh, we made such a progressive like, movie. Yeah, we, we, yeah, that's it. Like, it's like, this is it's one step from here to Greenberg, Green Book, baby. One step from here to Green Book. Speaking of Green Book, you, you say that they're not on <laughs> Steven Spielberg's level, but don't they have like the same amount of Best Picture Oscars as Spielberg does? Isn't it? Does he only have Schindler's List for Best Picture? No, he also has for Best Picture. Did um, Oh, he does for Best Picture. You're right. He won. Was it, Did he win Best Director for Saving Private Ryan? He lost Shakespeare in Love. He won Best Director and lost Best Picture. Lost, lost Best Picture to Weinstein. That was the Shakespeare in Love year. No, it's right. Yeah, it was the, I think it was the director picture split. Yeah. So Peter uh, Fairley has never won Best Director, but the, I mean, they. But he's as good a picture maker. <laughs> as many Fairley Brothers <laughs> pictures have Best Picture Oscars as Spielberg. That's brutal. But it's like you look at that run where it it's like Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin, there's something about Mary. And it's like they captured like if you're looking at 90s comedy for good and for ill, it's like them and the Sandler movies. And then they just kind of just drop off the face of the earth where nobody remembers like Osmosis Jones, Hall Pass, The Heartbreak Kid. Any of those make any impression whatsoever, which um, is. Isn't The Heartbreak Kid the remake of the Elaine May movie, the Charles Grodin picture? Yeah. Um, yep, it's yeah, a remake of the 90s yeah, that, with Ben Stiller and Marilyn Ackerman. I've never seen the remake, but the Elaine Mo- the, the Elaine May movie is wonderful. Um, and so logically, this must be as well, because it's from the yeah, director right. who has as many Oscars for Best Picture as Spielberg does, right? But, but you, you bring up um, some of their other... I think Me, Myself, and Irene was another one of those yeah. movies that kind of hit That's 2000. That's kind of the cusp. Yeah, that's the cusp of it. I've never seen Osmosis Jones, but I know it has its defenders. I think there are some people who, who think that's kind of like funny and transgressive in you know the right ways but i'm that's that's not me making a value judgment i've never seen the movie don't attack me if i'm wrong (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no sorry it's just it's just kind of interesting when you put in that context and you mentioned like the the tiredness of like putting the three stooges on the couch with snooki and like dumb and dumber 2 doing a heisenberg joke and it really does feel like it's you know older men kind of being like we are young and we're still relevant we still get it we still the kids we know what the kids like they like snooki and heisenberg right in fairness i think it's better to do a movie where the three stooges meet snooki than to do like whatever the like ghostbusters afterlife version of the three stooges would be (laughs) where it's like oh we have to have like reverence for these goofy characters or whatever emotional cgi created stooges to bring back the original ghost Um, that that always gets it's just like the first ghostbusters is a movie where dan Aykroyd gets a blowjob from a ghost and then cut to like and like the, the big big joke is crossing the streams it's a penis yeah. that's a urination joke and 40 years <laughs> later uh, i just a bunch of people sitting in the theater like yes someone's finally taking ghostbusters seriously or whatever e- egon egon's finally the dad that we yeah. always knew he could be so um. in in their way it may be like uh, you know very faint <laughs> praise but i think the three stooges sitting on a couch with snooki is is more faithful to the source material than a lot of these sort of lega sequels happen yeah. to be nowadays I, I like that it's like it's like grading on a curve it's like yeah. if you have to choose like how 90s comedy evolves Snooky is not the worst thing that you could add to it um all right then just wrapping up uh in terms of stuff because this is normally stuff that andrew would do uh on the podcast i'm gonna step in it's gonna be really uncomfortable i think inappropriate smoking 
Uh, obviously, Brian Pershonen smokes and blows up a uh, petrol station, which I assume is where a large part of the $19 million went. I was surprised that they, they seem to have had a real explosion of the, the car yeah. there. Yeah, an actual practical effect. Um, and they do the really tired joke of the service worker peeing in the drinks, which again is one of those things where it's like... Uh, as you said, it's the kind of thing where, oh, look, we're, yeah. Yeah, this guy's working a job you don't like, and he's awful. He's the villain of the piece somehow. And then he's also drinking the slushy uh, that he yeah. uh, apparently peed in, so I guess that's his thing or whatever. It just seems, yeah. it's one of those weird things about this movie is it's just like, well, disregard character, just do whatever, once again, whatever the cheapest, dumbest joke is at this at this exact moment, like, whatever. And the exploding petrol station is, of course, an obligatory RoboCop reference. I have to fit that one in there as well. Uh, all these movies have them. RoboCop is the urtext of cinema. Um, and then finally, in terms of food waste, we talked already about the ketchup and the mustard. That's got to count as food waste. All right, then. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. So something you're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that is bringing you joy. Um, I'd normally, again, ask Andrew to go first on this one, but to give you a chance to think about this, Raymond, uh, I'm going to go first. Um, And I would just say that there's uh, a whole bunch of really great movies out at the moment, particularly if you're in the UK or Ireland, where recently we've had like 3,000 Years of Longing will have come out a couple of weeks before this was released. Uh, David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future um, is releasing in cinemas, I think, the weekend that this episode is releasing. Um, There's also even smaller things like See How They Run, which is nice. It's nice to see like filmmakers ripping off Wes Anderson like they used to rip off Tarantino. If only because that takes a lot more work. And just, yeah, just generally some some other stuff as well. Like, there's a whole bunch... I, a lot of flack this year about the state of blockbusters. A lot of complaints about how the blockbuster slate was maybe not a great one. Maybe not an all-timer. But there was a nice selection of kind of weird, quirky, indie stuff. So things like, say, The Northman. Things like Elvis. Um, everything, everywhere, all at once. All of which are available digitally. Um, I suspect I probably liked Men more than you, Raymond. I'm going to go out there and suggest. But I think that uh, I really like that. X and yeah, that that's it. That's that's what I would recommend. But what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Um, well, you you say something I've been enjoying doesn't have to be related to this movie. So no. <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> as, as far away from this as possible. Um, I, I enjoy the moments when I'm not watching Dumb and Dumber. Before before I I jump into mine, I'm just curious. You mentioned Three Thousand Years of Longing. I saw that yesterday. What did you think of that? I really liked it. Actually, I found uh, myself kind of very moved by it, uh, which is interesting. Um, hmm. I quite liked again i think there are maybe some issues with the last act i think it's maybe a little bit rushed maybe a little bit compressed I'd but agree. I, I actually i quite admire just the the pacing of it it's kind of weird where it's like from the director of mad max fury road the trailer constantly selling you with this bombastic yeah. kind of phasmagoric kind of bump 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 kind of like all this crazy stuff you're gonna see and the movie is it's 12 minutes shorter than fury road and it kind of feels more ambly and more rambly and much more interested in scenes of Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba talking in a hotel room in Istanbul yeah. um, than it is in kind of like the big epic stuff. I, I found it really moving myself. I'm guessing maybe you didn't. Or maybe well, you... I, I wasn't that into it, but I was into just seeing a filmmaker have such such a weird... $60 million. Yeah, bizarre vision to be executed on that scale. And... Uh, you know, this is something that I think it's I think it's worth celebrating when someone is enabled to take a big swing like that, even if it doesn't really work for me. But I, I really liked it moment to moment. But I think yeah. what you were saying that it just kind of feels rushed by the end of it. 
Um, and and that for me, the pacing sort of threw me off a little bit. I was sitting there under the impression there's a lot of fades to black in the third act, which yeah. is very, like which really does throw off the pacing in an interesting way. I thought. Um, and I I was under the impression during the whole movie because I think I had heard that it was an adaptation of a story. Uh, it's it's based on a short the story. The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye. Um, I think is it like AJ Bias? Darren? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure, but I I had heard. I, I thought I had heard that it was an adaptation of something. So as I was watching it, I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, this feels like a novel. This this feels, you know, it's it's weirdly contained, but also expansive in these flashbacks and fantasy sequences and stuff. And the nesting doll kind of structure, the anthology structure. Yeah, it's an interesting movie, and it does seem like one of those things, man, the trailer the trailer for it really was trying to Yes, it's very different. trying to sell you a, a bill of goods that I don't think George Miller was really interested on delivering. Um, but uh, always, always interesting to see what he does. He's had such a strange uh, filmography, I think. Babe Pig in the City, The Witches of Eastwick, Lorenzo's Oil. Ha- happy like, Feet, like, and then The Mad Max The two series. Happy Feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's such an eclectic filmography, which yeah. is kind of amazing. Like, cause I don't necessarily love The Happy Feet, but part of me is like, they're from the guy who did Mad Max, and he invented his own animation studio to do it, which is just it's it's hard to reconcile yeah he's he's definitely an interesting filmmaker and i'll basically watch anything he does just because i'm i am interested in how that body of work holds together um and uh just before before getting into the stuff that i i really enjoyed just i don't know why you're taking shots at me about men (laughs) no i'm not taking shots at you about men i just kind of like i kind of i kind of got them like if you if you weren't particularly fond of like the batman i figured that like men kind of had a Men, Men is a movie that I figure if you're not going to meet it on the way that it wants sure. to be met, it requires a, a lot of buy-in. I think this I would... this is a movie you were recently talking about on Requiem for a Dream. Uh, is Mother? I know that you're yes. not you're not really much of a fan of Mother, or at the very least, that's kind of near the bottom of your Aronofsky rankings. Yes, I admire it more than I enjoy it. It's probably I'm glad it exists. I would probably yeah. agree with you. And I love Alex Garland. I count Ex Machina and Annihilation among my favorite films of the last decade. I was so on board for men and I like some of the visual conceit of it, but it felt to me like what if mother, but less audacious <laughs> and, <laughs> and it just, it, it like, it kind of left me wanting a little yeah. bit. It, it, it felt like there just wasn't any there there, but I still enjoyed the film. Okay. But no, no but I, I, I don't feel so bad now. Cause I felt like it was really bad. If I misjudge you, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't oh, no, 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 no. shade or aspersions. I was, <laughs> no. I was more kind of like, Trying to figure out what I know of Raymond and kind of like what I, I factor of like that was not a judgment. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I I just love how like I feel like every time we have a conversation, we we start to it feels like we're like zeroing in on each other in a way of like Circling trying to trying to figure out you know the the movie map in your brain as much yeah, as you're trying to figure yeah. out the one in mine. But uh, I, I digress. Some stuff that I um. I've actually been editing my first feature over the past couple of months, so I haven't had much time to watch anything other than for podcasts. Um, But then yesterday, we're having this terrible heat wave in Los Angeles, and I don't have AC in my apartment. So in the middle of the day, I was like, I'm just going to go to a couple of movies because I'm not going to be able to focus on my work right now anyway. And I went to 3,000 Years of Longing, um, and I also went to see um, a movie with Aubrey Plaza called Emily the Criminal, which I... I've heard very good things. I really enjoyed. It's very, very simple. 
Um, it's it's just kind of like a, a, a pretty straightforward middle of the road thriller about a, a woman who's kind of down on her luck. She has like 70 grand in student loan payments to make. And um, she's working like a gig economy job. And the movie interrogates like the exploitation of labor and is constantly making points of like her boss at the gig job is saying like, oh, you know, if you got a problem with the way I run things, go tell your union steward. Ha ha ha. And then... By the end of the movie, we're, we're actually covering Thief on Cinemythology um, next week. And by the end of the movie, similar to James Caan and Thief, like, she has taken matters into her own hands. <laughs> she, <laughs> she has seized the means of production. Um, but another movie that I was able to, uh, to watch recently is uh, a flick that's currently streaming on Shudder, which I really enjoyed. Uh, it stars Micah Monroe. Uh, it's a film called Watcher. Um, and it's a very, very simple premise as well. It's just this woman moves to, uh, I think it's Romania with her husband who has this, he has this job in marketing. He speaks Romanian. So they send him to the, the, the office there and she is just a stranger in a strange land, kind of left to wilt in this gilded cage of their penthouse apartment. And she notices one day, or one night rather, that someone across the street is just sitting in their window watching her. And, you know, she she tries to just not think about it. And then the next night he's watching her again. And then they get some drapes to cover up the windows and make sure that he can't watch her at night. But she always knows he's there. And it's this sort of splinter in her mind of like, who is this guy across the street? Why is he watching me? And then on top of that, there has been a string of serial killings that have been happening in the area. So she, in her time at home, while she's been kind of like abandoned by her husband, who's, you know, constantly at work, she starts doing some kind of like armchair private detective stuff of like going around and trying to piece things together despite the fact that she doesn't speak the language and doesn't understand aspects of the culture and it's just like a really really sharp mostly contained thriller uh and Micah Monroe who is in um It Follows and The Guest she's she's just kind of becoming like a really solid scream queen yeah uh she does phenomenal work in it uh, and I, I recommend that one it's it, like I said it's streaming on Shutter if you uh, if you have a subscription to that Shutter is like quickly, one, quietly one of the most impressive streaming services, which is quite impressive. Like the the, the independent productions or the home that they've given to things like is it anything for Jackson? I think it is recently was very good and a uh, glorious, which is not not amazing. Oh yeah, but Rebecca like, McKendry's as, movie. As, yeah, yeah, as as good a high con like from the high concept of the movie, it is as perfect a distillation as I think you could ask for. Um, all right then. So also. If listeners are looking for a bit more Raymond Creamer in their lives, where can they find you? What you at? So you mentioned that you're editing your movie. Do you want to talk about that? Because that's kind of cool. Um, I or is that too early? You know, it might be. It might be too early for that. Um, uh, like there are a lot of people who are mad at me for. Uh, oh, sorry. It, no, 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 no. I'm not like not like sincerely. I just no. you know like my 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 manager and my lawyer and stuff are mad at me that it's still too early to talk about that because I was <laughs> I was okay. supposed to have a finished cut like two months ago. <laughs> Um, okay. so I, yeah, I, I generally don't talk about that stuff too much. I, I brought it up in the context of like, I haven't had much time recently. I, I know, but it's a, it's a cool thing. Like when we have people who actually do that stuff on here, it's fascinating. Sure. Sure. Um, it's, it's one of those things that definitely informs the way that I watch and talk about movies. Um, but I also, I, I I'm very self-conscious about like 
talking about my career as a guy who lives in Hollywood where like everyone is wanting to talk about their career. But yeah, th things are going well with that. But for the most part, if you want to catch me right now, uh, the best place to find me is either on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria there. Or you can check out my podcast that uh, that Darren was a guest on, uh, Cinemythology. We, over the, the first season, we're calling it, we've been covering uh, all of Martin Scorsese's work chronologically. Darren joined me for a discussion on Color of Money. We couldn't really make the time work with my co-host either. <laughs> um, no, 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 your, it wasn't. Well, your co-host did show up eventually for like your recording. Yeah. So to be clear. I, I expect you and Andrew to do a second half of this episode. Yes. Um, no, but also it was it, it was kind of a blameless thing. Like I'm in yeah. Los Angeles, you're in Ireland, my co-host is in Australia. So like yeah. we were so spread Finding out. Finding that pinpoint exactly. on the spreadsheet was yeah and no no I'm, I'm absolutely not i'm more just illustrating that you're your co i feel like andrew won't object to me clarifying that your co-host is a professional <laughs> that, um, yeah. austin actually pulls his weight shame on you andrew if you're listening okay, okay. <laughs> i didn't know that far um <laughs> no no um uh we, we've been covering scorsese but lately because uh i've been so busy with the movie there's there's like the scorsese episodes are very research intensive uh, so yeah. we've been taking some time off from that and just kind of doing like week to week, trying to talk about movies that are still sort of in the same milieu of like movies from his contemporaries or movies that influenced him. We just did an episode on the searchers. Um, and then, uh, but things that are more conversational don't require the, the same output yeah, in terms of, yeah, that we can kind of just watch the movie and turn on the mic. Exactly. You know, as a podcaster, I agree. Um, so yeah, if you yeah. want to check us out, that's Cinemythology. And uh, a great place to start is Darren's episode. I had a, a, an incredible conversation with you. I was so grateful that you joined us for that, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and just in terms of schedule, so you mentioned that you released Thief this week. This is going out in two weeks. If you know what you have, you can drop This name. will be going out in two weeks. So we will have just covered Thief. So, like the 17th. And I think the, the episode we're doing after Thief is Real Women Have Curves, uh, directed by uh, Patricia Cardoso. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Austin, we haven't recorded that one yet. Austin's about to leave uh, to go on vacation. He'll be gone for a couple of weeks. Um so uh, giving Andrew a run for his money as far as uh, not appearing on his own podcast. Um, but I'm, I'm going to bring on a couple friends of the show and, and some other guests to kind of fill in for him over those couple weeks. So I think, I think we're doing Real Women Have Curves uh, whenever you're hearing this. Perfect. And we will be back next week talking about a movie that I don't know yet. Uh, the schedule has been a bit chaotic. Myself and Andrew have been a bit busy. It's been very difficult to line up the schedule and get everything properly sorted so i don't know what we're going to be talking about next week however i do know that the week afterwards we'll be beginning our halloween preparation the wonderful jimanda hagen will be joining us to talk about fear.com and then the following saturdays we'll be talking about donnie darko and s darko with the fantastic dr bernice murphy from trinity college and the sensational joey kyo joining us again after talking about jaws 3 so yep our halloween schedule is i thought our halloween schedule is really kicking I, off oh I, I just thought you were gonna say you were you guys were getting ready for friedberg fall now that it's <laughs> the fall of friedberg no it's the fall of free it has to be like a proper it has to be like proper epic kind of epic movie <laughs> epic podcast season um yeah, no, I haven't pitched that to Andrew. Andrew, if Andrew is listening to this, this is the first time he will hear about the summer of Seltzer and the fall of Friedberg. <laughs> um, I've been convincing him that we're going to do the 13 Hitchcock movies, and boy, is he in for a surprise. There are 13 Hitchcocks on the, the top 250? There have been. 
So I'm uh-huh. going to cheat. It's like with Scorsese. I'm going to cheat and do every movie that Hitchcock has because we've only done two. Which ones? Of them over the past. So we did. We already did North by Northwest and Psycho. Okay. So that leaves uh, pretty much all the big ones you can imagine. You you mentioned on the last episode of the 250, or at least the last one as of this recording, that pe- you think people are like afraid to do Hitchcock. Yes. So they've kind of steered yes. clear of them. I am not afraid to do Hitchcock. I'll talk about Hitchcock with you guys. <laughs> if, you're, if you're hard up on guests, just give me a call, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, hey, look, if if I thought you had the free time, I would bring you on as our guest co-host. Like we had Jay for the summer of Scorsese and we had Emma for like the Jaws Shark Week. If I thought I could wrestle you for 13 solid weeks of Hitchcock, I would do it. But we'll figure out. We'll figure out something anyway. We'll see. <laughs> thanks a million. I'll let you get back. Um, thanks a million, Ray. I mean-